Good morning. It's good to be back. Hey, I have a question this morning I wanted to start off with. Have you ever taken a simple thing and made it a little too complicated? Have you ever taken a simple thing and made it overly complicated? I thought about asking that, this question this morning and I thought, well, you know, I thought about everyone that's here today that I know and I thought to myself, well, you know what? I'm pretty sure no one in that room is going to be able to say yes to that question. I think we all pretty easily just say, no, I've never overcomplicated a situation. So to be a little bit more relatable, I know we've all at least experienced it when somebody has made something more complicated than it needs to be. Been to a restaurant where the chef has included one too many ingredients, maybe five too many ingredients, and taken a pretty good dish and made it unrecognizable. Driven by a building where the architect has added one too many elements, maybe five too many elements. We don't even know what we're looking at. Maybe listen to a song with one too many notes, three too many chords, I don't know, and it's just too complicated for our ear to pick up. If we haven't, made something simple too complicated, surely we've experienced it. When a chef overcomplicates something, we can taste it. When an architect overcomplicates something, we can see it. And when a composer overcomplicates something, we can hear it. I'd like to get back to doing things a little bit more simply. Stop overcomplicating things that don't need to be overcomplicated. You know, it doesn't matter what Grillmates comes out with next. Even when you walk down the seasoning aisle at Walmart, the best seasoning for a ribeye cut steak is still coarse ground salt. That's it. We don't have to overcomplicate things. And I struggled trying to, and I did also, I was looking at psychology today articles and some of it was, didn't make any sense, but I was trying to understand why is it that we overcomplicate simple things? What are we actually going after whenever we do this? One author wrote that the human nature, the human condition to overcomplicate simple things comes from insecurity. In fact, it comes from the human condition of being unwilling to address the insecurity that we have in particular subjects that causes us to overcomplicate them. Because if it's complicated, that lets us make excuses. If it's simple, what's the excuse? I kind of understood that and I thought about it and I think it actually starts to make sense. Let me shift gears here for a little bit, kind of tell you what we're talking about this morning. Last week we started a, a new sermon series going through proposed core values for our church, right? We've proposed some core values, our P-cubed core values, prayer, community, unity, the Bible, evangelism, and discipleship. Six core values for our church. We talked about prayer last week. This week we're talking about the E in P-cubed. We're talking about evangelism. This is one of those things... I think it's very simple that our insecurity allows to become 
overly complicated. Evangelism. The question we have to ask ourselves in considering these core values is whether or not we all agreed, or so far we have agreed, that these are the values our church should have. Or maybe these are the values that our church does have. That's really the question we have to answer. Are these values aspirational values or are they actual values? Are these six things that we've talked about over the past couple of months and listed out, are these things that we want to be a core value? Or are they things that actually are a core value? It doesn't really matter which way you answer that question. The point is we have to answer it if we're going to make any progress at all. We have to answer it and confront that. That question that I'm asking is important because if our core values are actual core values, they're affecting everything that we do. They're causing us to uh, consider the things that we're doing. They're forcing us to evaluate our decisions and our behaviors, and they're influencing every action of our lives. Not just as a church, but as individual members of a church. This morning we'll be taking a look at the ministry of, I think, my role model evangelist, the Apostle Paul and his protege disciple Timothy. Continuing in the book of Colossians this morning, I want to look at the ministry of Paul the evangelist. I want to look at how Paul kept things simple. So in your Bible this morning, I'd ask you to turn with me. Again, we're in Colossians chapter 1, and I'll be reading from verse 24 all the way through verse 29. Before we read, though, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege of being here this morning, the opportunity that we have to learn from your word. God, I know that it's you that will make it possible for us to understand what we're going to discuss this morning. And so, God, I pray that you would open our hearts that we might be able to understand the truths that we find in your word. God, I pray that you would guide this sermon with the truth that you would have us take away from it. In your precious name we pray. Amen. The Bible says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone that teaching warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
There's three misconceptions that are common around evangelism that are clearly and concisely refuted in Paul's explanation of his ministry to the church in Colossae. When we think about evangelism, let me just say it like it is, there's three excuses that I hear. Excuse number one, the fear of rejection is a decent enough excuse for us to withhold an explanation for the hope that we have. Misconception number two, we aren't capable of effectively providing an explanation for the hope that we have, and therefore we can't do a good job at it. Finally, this third misconception, that the great mystery of the gospel is just too complicated to understand. How am I supposed to share it with somebody else? Really fast, let me be clear, all three of these things are a lie. I call them misconceptions because they are not true. But Paul, in writing to the church in Colossae here in 1 Corinthians verses 24 through 29, is giving us an explanation of his ministry. What, who he is, what he does, and why he does it. And in all three of these explanations, Paul refutes these three common misconceptions that we have around evangelism. Let's take them one at a time. Misconception number one, I said, was that being rejected, the fear of being isolated is reason enough not to share the hope that we have, not to provide an explanation of the hope that we have in Christ. Some of you are looking at me funny this morning, like what I just said is crazy. This is a real thing that people say. And they get around it real craftily. This is what people say whenever, that, that whenever they have this type of argument. They say, well, look, I can do better if I maintain a strong relationship with people. If I come off, you know, as a Christian fanatic, who's going to want to spend time with me? It's not going to matter. You know, they get real crafty. They say that they're doing evangelism by not doing evangelism. Isn't that silly? Paul makes it pretty clear, though. Our purpose in sharing the hope that we have in Christ is much bigger than the circumstance we might find ourselves in if we face rejection if we even maybe face persecution. The purpose that we have is bigger than our circumstances. Look at this. Start off where Paul starts in verse 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is the church of which I became a minister. Guys, you realize Paul's writing this letter. We talked about the context some last week. You realize Paul's writing from prison? He's not writing from the comforts of home. He's writing from prison. You know how he got there, right? Went on three missionary journeys. At the end of the third one, he went to Jerusalem. And he was accused by the, by the uh, Jewish courts. He was accused of desecrating the temple by bringing a... Gentile into it. 
I do that because it's just a ridiculous idea that a Gentile would share in the love of God. It was a false accusation, first of all. But the Jewish courts listened to all of Paul's arguments up until the point he mentioned a Gentile again. It was at that point that he was really taken as prisoner, turned over to the Romans and wrapped up in, into all of these different things until Paul eventually, using his right as a Roman citizen, appealed his case to Caesar. That's why he was in Rome. He appealed his case to Caesar. He's been there for two years is what, what we know. He's writing this letter to a bunch of strangers, church in Colossae he never met before. And he says, I rejoice for your sake that I'm here suffering. Paul's writing because he was rejected for saying that the gospel was relevant to the Gentiles. This whole thing has to do with evangelism. He was rejected and he says, I rejoice because the purpose that I have is bigger than the circumstance that I'm currently in. He got there because of false accusations. The Jews threw him into prison, kept him in prison. I love, it's almost kind of witty that Paul would put this in this place in this letter. If you're following what's happened in Colossae, he's writing to this group of unbelievers, and he's writing to them because Really, the founder of the church, Epaphras, has come back to Rome and told Paul about some sticky issues that are taking place in the church. Namely, false prophets have infiltrated the church, made people get wrapped up by overcomplicating things, and Epaphras is asking for help addressing it. And Paul's writing with authority, writing with authority to give these church members' instruction, people that he's never met, give them instruction in how they should navigate these sticky waters. It makes sense that the false teachers that had taken root in the church in Colossae most likely had tried to undermine Paul. Realize this isn't in the Bible. I'm giving you context the way that I see it. This is Derek's supposition, maybe what's happening. The false teachers that had taken root in the church in Colossae most likely tried to undermine the authority of the Apostle Paul by saying, you're going to listen to that guy instead of me? Why is he not here with you? Isn't he in prison? You're going to listen to a prisoner instead of listening to me. Paul, in addressing this, this is really smart. He says, I am in prison, and I'm in prison because I love you. I'm in prison because I was bold following the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of Christ who called me to be a minister of the gospel in the first place, but because I was saying that the gospel belongs to you, Gentiles, that you get a share in the glory and the hope that the Jews have been waiting for. It's logical. He's building a relationship with these people, saying that he rejoices in his sufferings for their sake. He's glad that he's there instead of them, that he's doing it for the benefit of the church, not just the Jews, but the church, the Gentiles too. He's doing it for their benefit, that he might be rounding out, that he might be preparing the church, that he might be suffering on behalf of the church. You guys, Paul is 
not just making a logical argument, but he's also giving us a perspective of why our circumstance doesn't matter in comparison to the purpose that we have. See, Paul has a bigger picture, doesn't he? Right from the beginning of this passage, he starts addressing things from the perspective of the church. The group of believers, this isn't just about him. This just isn't about false teachers. This is about the church. The people. God's chosen people. He says, I don't care about my current circumstances because I have a picture that's much bigger than this. In fact, you know what? Paul maybe could even rejoice in the fact that he was privileged enough to suffer on behalf of Christ. Don't you know that there's a special place in heaven for those that are persecuted under Christ's name? A special place in heaven for those that suffer because of the gospel. I think Paul considered himself privileged to be rejected. You apply that to our lives today, we'd rather keep our mouths shut than not have friends. I don't say that to bully anyone, but it's true. We'd be better off keeping our mouths shut that we can maintain relationships with people than to share the hope that we have. Where's our perspective of eternity when we say things like that? Where's our perspective of eternity? I shared, I guess, uh, almost 10 months ago now, a video of Penn Jillette. Some of you might remember it. But he asked the question, how much do you have to hate someone to believe that there's a hell and not tell them about Jesus? Hmm. When we allow the fear of being rejected to become an obstacle to living the life of an evangelist, what we are really saying is that our circumstances on earth matter more than the eternal kingdom of God. It wasn't the Roman government that put Paul in prison. It was the Jewish government that started the process. He was rejected by his own people, and he considered it joy. He said, I rejoice in my sufferings. We've adopted a clear perspective. I'm sorry. We have to adopt a clear perspective of eternity if we're going to get past the fear of ridicule to see people in heaven. I'd rather be mocked and ridiculed than watch the people that I love pass away. They most certainly will. And not have the comfort and assurance that comes in knowing their destination. I think that's enough on that. Said so there's a second misconception. Not only is there this misconception that our circumstances are more important than our purpose, which is not true, but there's this second misconception that we're not good enough or qualified enough to do the work of an evangelist. Some people say, I don't know how to evangelize. I don't know how to share my faith. And that's the reason why I don't do it. Because I'm afraid of messing up. Paul's clear. 
and giving us this definition of his ministry that the work that is being done is not ours. Say we're called to be an evangelist, the work of an evangelist that we are being called to is not ours. People will say, oh brother, well I agree with you, but you know, I'm just not spiritually gifted as an evangelist. That's not my job. By the way, let me just say, when I worked in a corporate environment, that was my least favorite response that I could possibly hear. That's not my job. I know you guys know what I'm talking about. When somebody says that's not my job, that person is not engaged, not interested, and honestly doesn't have a place working with me. When it comes to the church, somebody says, that's not my job. Are you kidding me? Why is that not your job? Because it doesn't matter to you? Everybody, nobody, and somebody all work together, right? Everybody had a job to do. But everybody was sure that somebody would do it. At the end of the day, nobody did it. Don't tell me that's not my job. It's a twisted self-centeredness that causes a person to think that the one that does the work of an evangelist is the person who's sharing their testimony at all. Think you have to be crafty and witty or somehow specially trained to be able to do this successfully. I'm saying that that is a special kind of self-centeredness that causes a person to think down that road. Providing a witness isn't about having a crafty argument. Sharing our testimony isn't about being well-spoken. It's about being genuine and authentic and sharing the realities that we've experienced ourselves. A good testimony has nothing to do with the way that it's framed. It has everything to do with the authenticity. It has everything to do with the character of the person sharing it. So look at how Paul addresses this. This misconception that we're not ready to do the work of an evangelist because, because, well, that work, that's not really ours to do anyway. The work that we are called to doesn't belong to us. Look how Paul says this. Three places. Verse 25, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship of God. Verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. God chose. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all whose energy? His energy, that He powerfully works in me. This is maybe the most important, maybe the most practical lesson that we can wrap our heads around in being successful in sharing this hope that we have in Christ. It's not our work. It really isn't about us. It's about the work that God is doing through us. It's about being available for God to use. Verse 27 makes it clear that God's plan was to start this work in the first place. It was God's choice to start this work. 
Verse 29 makes it clear that it's God who is performing the work through Paul. This entire time, I think it's incredible that Paul is is writing to these people and he's boasting not in his strengths, not in his, his authority as an apostle. He's boasting in his weakness. He says, I'm in prison and I'm rejoicing for it. And guess what? God's the one who's doing work through me. I'm weak, but he's strong. Look at how he's putting this together. He's boasting in his weakness. Rather than boasting of his strengths or his authority, Paul is refuting the false teachers in the church in Colossae by boasting in his weakness. Logically, isn't this a better appeal? Rather than appealing to his own authority, he's appealing to God's. But realistically, he's allowing his strength to come from his weakness. This is the authenticity of the testimony that Paul has. Brennan Manning wrote, If we conceal our wounds out of fear and shame, our inner darkness can neither be illuminated nor become a light for others. I think a lot of times as Christians, we try to share our testimony through the preface or the false kind of misrepresentation that we're something that we're not. The reality is, the most effective testimony starts in who we were before God got a hold of us. The reality is, it's transformation that really gets people to understand the hope that we have. Because you you can't fake it. It's not something that can be faked. An authentic testimony is so powerful because it is seen in every area of our life. In our weaknesses and in our struggles, people are able to see the one that is working powerfully through us. The work of an evangelist comes from a place of weakness, of transparency and authenticity, being able to share the areas of our life that God is working within. It's a weird kind of self-centeredness to say I'm not good enough or well-prepared enough to be an evangelist. Because by the way, the Bible says it has nothing to do with you. We have to be careful of how we approach evangelism. It's not a task that is dependent on us to become it is not a task that is dependent on us, but it is a task that requires us to become completely dependent on God. We have to allow our strength, like Paul to come from our weakness. Finally, my third point. I'm almost done. This third misconception about evangelism is that the gospel is too complicated for one, us to share with people, or two, for people to understand it if we don't do a good job at explaining it. That the realities of eternity and of heaven are just too complicated for us to get out of our mouths. 
This one's my favorite. This is so silly. Paul addresses this by referring to this great mystery, this mysterion. See what he says? Um, Verse 26, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. See what he's saying? He's referring to this great mystery, this absolutely complicated idea that we've got to somehow express and people have to understand. This misconception. Here's how Paul addresses it. The secret is not a secret anymore. Let's look at verse 26. Let's read this. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, to them God chose to make them known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. I love the way Eugene Peterson frames this up. If you're not familiar with Eugene Peterson, he's the the man responsible for the paraphrase of the Bible known as the message. Eugene Peterson, so the message says, This mystery has been kept in the dark for a long time, but now it is out in the open. God wanted everyone, not just the Jews, to know this rich and glorious secret inside and out, regardless of their background, regardless of their religious standing. The mystery, in a nutshell, is just this. Christ is in you. So therefore, you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. It's that simple. That is the substance of our message. We preach Christ, warning people not to add to this message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. Christ, no more, no less. There is nothing complicated about this mystery. When we really put all the elements together, it only comes down to one thing. There was one person that made it possible for us to share in the glories of heaven. Let's get basic. Let's quit being complicated. The gospel, you can remember if you have a hard time, you can remember it with an acrostic. Gospel. G-O-S-P-E-L. God. Our sins paying everyone life. God created everyone and everything, everything in the universe, but He created everyone because He wants to have a relationship with them. Our sins ultimately are what separated us from God. But by the way, that didn't surprise Him. He had a plan when He created everything to restore and get past our sins. The problem with sins, though, is there's no amount of good works that's ever going to make it possible for us to wipe away sins. There's no amount of good works that are ever going to overcome sin and allow us to get into heaven. That's nonsense. That's why God sent Himself in the form of Jesus Christ, the man, completely God, completely man, to die on a cross and to make payment because He is the perfect substitution for all of our sins, made payment... For us. 
By the way, that payment is sufficient for everyone and anyone who ever lived and ever will live. It is enough for them and for me and for you today. Here's the bad news. It's only ever going to be effective for those who put their faith in Him. Just because it is sufficient for everyone doesn't mean it's effective for everyone. Because it requires first that we put our faith in Christ our Savior. And then everyone and anyone who does that gets to experience new life. Eternal life. And the glories and the riches of heaven. It's that simple. You're telling me it's complicated? G-O-S-P-E-L. Right there. Problem being addressed in this, to this church when we're looking at Colossians, if we look at the, the larger context, false teachers had come and allowed this new church that had just been beginning to take shape, had allowed them to get wrapped up in just overcomplicating things. I say that this morning. I've talked about overcomplicating simple things, and I said the reason that we do it is because we have an insecurity that we've been unwilling to address within ourselves. I'm pretty insecure about not being a perfect person. And so when the Bible tells me that sin is what makes it impossible for me to have a relationship with God, and I try to wrap my head around what grace really is, that He loved me so much that He made a perfect sacrifice, that that sacrifice is sufficient at all for me. I mean, does God even know how bad I am? I have a secret, He does. We try to overcomplicate it. We try to make the message of the gospel more complicated than it actually is. And we do it not just for ourselves, but we do it as an excuse for not sharing it with everyone who needs it because we know how badly they need it. Because we have a clear understanding. We've gotten basic. We've gotten mature in Christ. And we've gotten to the point where we know how desperately people who don't have Jesus need Him. How many times have I failed? How many times have I ran away from the opportunity to share the hope that I have? Because I was insecure. What does it cost? Reality is, we use our insecurities to become an excuse for everyone else. We also allow them to become an excuse in our own lives. The reason I don't have to get focused and get mature, the reason I don't have to push onward towards maturity in my faith and the realities, growing up mature as a Christian, is because I'm not good enough. Let's get basic. The secret of the gospel is Christ in you. It's that simple. He works in you. And just like Paul, the power that Paul relies on to do the work of his ministry is Christ. Let's get basic. Think about how we can 
apply this to our lives, I think it's pretty simple. We remember that our circumstance is much smaller than our purpose. The work that we have to do is not really ours. And finally, that the secret that we have is not really a secret. We get back to the basics. Today's World Missions Day. Don't allow supporting and being a part of a mission that is so much bigger than our community to be an excuse not to leave here today and be an evangelist. Don't walk out of here and say, it's not my job. It is your job. The most important thing you have to protect your testimony is your character. How you present yourself doesn't really matter when we talk about who you actually are. A lot of folks have been talking about the millennial generation and now the Gen Z generation is continuing to leave the church and swarm. Even those that grew up in church, once they graduate, don't really come back. And the survey was released talking about what really matters to this elusive generation that's so difficult to understand. They want authenticity. They want people to say what they mean and to mean what they say. When we come to church and we say that we know people are going to hell when they don't have faith in Christ, and we leave here and we don't tell anyone about it, that is a picture of fake. That's a picture of not caring. Here's the real challenge. Doing the work that we've been called to. Meaning what we say. Don't run away from an excuse because you think you're not big enough, strong enough, capable enough, smart enough. You aren't. But it's God that's going to be able to work in you if you let Him. It's a real blessing to be able to participate in the ministries of the BMA. To be able to support missionaries in the Philippines, in France, in Papua New Guinea, all over the world. Life Word Ministry. It's a real blessing to be able to contribute to those things, but it's a bigger shame when we allow our participation in those ministries to become an excuse for not doing our part in Greenwood, Arkansas. Because there's a church in Rogers, Arkansas that's relying on us to be the church in Greenwood, Arkansas. Likewise, not only am I participating in international ministries all over the world, but I'm relying on a church in Rogers, Arkansas to be the church in Rogers, Arkansas because that's not where I was called. We aren't just contributors and sponsors. We are partners in world missions.
And that means we have to support and do our part. We have this song of invitation. I ask you to respond. However the Spirit's leading you, I think it's important. I've said enough. So when I get to stop talking, this is the time for the Holy Spirit to keep talking. Would you?